Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Chick Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Chick Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we meander down the world of culture and how ideologies are impacting issues in our everyday lives. On today's show, I speak with Cam Slater, editor of the BFD, political commentator and avid gun enthusiast. This morning, we talk about the world of gun ownership and the squeeze on law-abiding gun owners and the farcical changes made to gun law since 2019. My second guest is Kelly Valudos from the ARC Education. We will look at the monolith that is our education system and where it's failing our children and why. Marty Gibson will also be along to round up the budget and the stories of the week. And of course, I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. And this is simply one you can't avoid. Committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. A day late and a dollar short. That's the saying with its origins in the American Deep South during the Great Depression of the 1930s. After hearing the budget this week, I can't help but feeling that we're all living in a state of deja vu. Inflation's rampant and the government announces a budget that feels light on actual content and high on hope. 
The superficial sprinkling of sugar with the dropping of prescription fees, ECE for two-year-olds, and half-price public transport, I guess will be meaningful when you're so sick and manage to even get to a GB to get a script, or a mum forced back to work to make up the mortgage when the fixed term rates roll off and your interest payments have catapulted up by 5%, or you're forced onto a bus because you can no longer insure or fuel your car. But don't worry, this is a bread and butter budget until you can't afford the bread and butter. Fear not, if you're in the public service, there's relief for you. Okay for thee, but not for me. Of course, there's very little mention of the extra billions being borrowed or printed, another financial legacy for our children to pay for. Not that Grant ever worries about such trivialities. I guess the only upside of this week's budget is, based on the previous five years, how much will actually get executed? As we've learned, this government gets a gold star for announcements and a lump of dirty Indonesian coal for delivery. We have five months to let this government know what we think. But not only them, the likely contenders in opposition too. My concern for this upcoming election is that we will, like government spending, have the largest volume of wasted votes. In 2020, 7.8% of party votes cast went to parties outside the political tent, and I fear this year it will be even more. With all the good intentions in the world, without an electorate seat, 5% of the party vote is like a political Everest, obtainable only by a very, very few. My party vote's still undecided. Why? Well, it's because I know I'll probably have to cast it in a direction that I am certainly not happy about. But I know that at least if I cast it in that direction, it gives me a greater likelihood of not returning us to the ideological progressive nightmare that we currently live under. In this election, we'll need to wean ourselves off hopium, as Cam Slater calls it. Because if we don't, we could end up being a vote short in a day late. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're with Reality Check Radio and I am Marie, your host for Counterculture. And this morning, my guest really doesn't need much introduction. You hear him on the political panel on Fridays. It is Cam Slater. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Marie? I'm very good, thank you. I wanted to talk to you this morning about firearms because it is something that got brought up in the interview I did with Naomi Wolf. And I think it's one of those elements of New Zealand life that 
doesn't get talked about, and I think we do need to talk about it. Gun ownership in New Zealand. Give us a rundown of perception versus reality. Okay, there's a perception that we've got really, really strict gun laws in New Zealand, and to a certain extent that's true, but it's also not true. Um, Up until uh, the Christchurch uh, massacre, we had a licensing regime that focused on uh, allowing people to have firearms if they met a fit and proper person test. Now, I say that it's a test, but it's, it's not actually a test. This is the, the whole thing about firearms law in New Zealand. It's, also, it's, it's almost like it's asked backwards. So they say that you can only um, get a firearms licence if you are a fit and proper person. And if you look at the Arms Act 1983 and all of the amendments that have been done to that since, there's no test on what a fit and proper person is. There's only a list of what a fit and proper person isn't. And so, so exactly. So if you go through the Arms Act and have a look at it, it says you you can't be a fit and proper person if these things are true, if even one of these things is true. And they're a, a little bit amorphous as well. Like one of them is is if you don't follow regulations. Now, this is fraught with danger because regulations, though technically a law, they're actually not in the law. They've been passed by an order in council by cabinet and haven't yet had parliament agree to them being a law and put into the arms act. And the chances of you finding what those regulations are as a layperson are very slim. And there's all sorts of regulations that that have been passed, uh, especially recently. Now, we had Stuart Nash as the the, um, police minister, and he was uh, in the 2017 election uh, saying that he wanted to end this uh, arms regulation via the order in councils and to put it through the parliament, which is what should happen. But then he um, absolutely just went with gay abandon, passing regulations that the police would come with to him with, and he never questioned them. He just took them straight to cabinet and had them approved. And a good example of this is the rule of the regu- I call them rules. The rules and regulations around transportation of firearms have been changed substantially. So if you were going hunting, you'd have your gun in a gun bag or a case, you'd chuck it in the back of the ute with all your gear, you'd drive off um, to where you're going hunting, park your car, get out, go hunting, come back. Well, now you have to have that firearm secured within the vehicle and the the suggestions from the police are that you have a chain somehow securing it to the chassis of the car. And it's nonsensical because if you've got, say, four people going hunting, and I often do go hunting with four or more people, we may have um, some 22s for shooting possums, some shotguns uh, for um, you know a little bit of pest control on some hares or rabbits that jump out from underneath you, and then we may have our hunting rifles for shooting deer, and we could end up with four people having something like 20 guns on board the, the ute. Well, you can't chain all of those to the chassis. You can't lock all of those up. 
So but what are, are the regulations? So they're, what they're is the purpose? So whoever suggested this, what is the purpose of that? Is it because they're wanting, if the vehicle was breached in, a, say, a robbery, that those guns would not be able to remo remove? Is that what the goal of well, the well, regulation well, that's, is? That's the thought process. But you can see that a feeble-minded person has come up with this thought process. What we've got is this new firearms authority, which is essentially a, a business unit of the police. And, and it's key to know that, it, that it's a business unit. It has a profit uh, incentive. And that's why they're looking at ratcheting up the fees and everything. But they've got this bunch of wombles down there who really don't know how ordinary people use firearms. Coming up with cockamamie scenarios of alleged crimes with no evidence that such a crime has even happened, or if it has happened, uh, has caused considerable harm, and passing regulations using order and counsel to regulate this new event that may or may not happen. Now, what the police have been doing in some districts is, is unconscionable. What they've been doing is waiting a kilometre down the road from a gun club and then stopping every vehicle that was at the gun club as they're leaving. And then saying to them, we'd like to inspect how you stored your firearms in the vehicle. And most people don't understand the law. And the law says that the police can't, that's not a, a proper reason for them to inspect inside your vehicle. And the regulation allows them to do this sort of, except the regulation doesn't trump the law, and the law says that they have to give you seven days' notice of a time that's suitable to you as the firearms owner, not the police. So if they pull you up on the side of the road and say, can we have a look at your firearms in the car, you're perfectly entitled under the law to say no. And there's nothing they can do about it. And so you've got these regulations that are in... Uh, are operating in contravention of the law and the police uh, are essentially bullying people or relying on people's goodwill um, to comply with the regulation in the first place. And another example of that is uh, for collectors, for example, like myself, we can buy and sell pistols and machine guns and submachine guns and hand grenades and artillery pieces and all of that sort of stuff. And it's all permitted and it's all... Uh, you know, in order to buy um, such a thing, we have to go and this is the ludicrous thing. There's so much paperwork. You have to fill in an application for a permit to possess that weapon, right? So you've got to apply for the permit to possess. You fill out what it is you're buying, who you're buying it from, what their firearms license number is, all of those sorts of details, and you fill in yours. You then send that to the arms officer who then farts around. Now, I'm lucky I get them done within 24 hours because they're scared of me. But, but what happens is you get mucked around and then eventually they say, oh, it's okay, you can come and pick up your permit to possess, right? So you then go to the police station to pick up the permit to possess and it's got exactly the same details on it for you as you put in your application. All they've done is handwrite what you put into the application form, transferred it into the permit to possess, but left the bottom part, the, the who you're buying it from, the seller's details, completely blank, even though you've already provided it to them in the application. 
You then take that uh, that permit to possess to uplift the firearm, fill in all of their details, and then you've got to take the firearm and the permit to possess back to the police so that they can inspect that what you've bought is, in fact, what your permit is allowed. Then they take a copy, you take a copy, and you leave with the firearm. But it's different if you, say, buy something at a gun auction or at a gun show. There's usually police officers there who who won't even do the application for a permit to possess. They'll just uh, provide a permit to possess right there and then on the spot. Now, I had an inspection at my house and the police accused me of disposing of a firearm illegally. And I'd sold that at a gun show and a police officer was there who'd given the permit to possess to the new person and taken it off my licence, except they never processed the paperwork from that. And so it was still on my licence. And technically, I was in breach of the law because I couldn't um, present the firearm to them that I still owned it, even though I'd sold it. And then... Uh, after they accused me of all of that. And I said, well, why don't you ask what actually happened And uh, instead of accusing me from the get-go? And that's the problem, is is the police just accuse you. They treat all gun owners as potential criminals rather than uh, remembering that they had to approve us as a fit and proper person, bearing in mind that list of things that you, you can't do. And, if you, and one of those is break the law. So we are law-abiding people because if we weren't, we would be a fit and proper person. But the whole premise of their attack on us is that we're criminals. And so we need to have these regulations to do this. So this arms officer says to me, well, do you have a copy of the paperwork to prove that? And I said to him, yes, I do. And he said, well, well can I have a copy? And I said, No. He said, well, why not? I said, because I'm not required under the law to give you that piece of paper. I could voluntarily give it to help you out, but I don't see why I should help you out because you've just accused me of committing a crime. And so, therefore, it's not in my interest to help you out. It's in my interest to protect the information that will give me a good, solid defence. And if you knew the law and you're a police officer, you wouldn't have done that. So, no, I'm not going to give you the paperwork. And this is the thing, if you know the law, then you're, you're in a much better position than just accepting what the police say. And we've seen during the pandemic that police are willing to break the law. Ends justifies the means for them. So anybody out there who thinks that the police are on firearms owners' side is deluded. They are against you. They are the enemy. They're not there to help you. They're there to hinder you. And all these regulations that are being passed are being dreamed up by people who know nothing about how people actually use firearms. And they're creating a legal morass for themselves and for shooters that's not based on any law. And this is the real problem that we have, you know. And, and there's, there's no constitutional right to bear arms in New Zealand, right? So um, No Second Amendment here. No Second Amendment here. But if you are a fit and proper person, you you can possess firearms. And under New Zealand law, you if you've got a firearm, you have to have a lawful, proper and sufficient purpose 
right? Those are the legal terms needed to use, discharge, or carry the firearm, right? And self-defense is not one of those. a lawful, proper purpose and sufficient, uh, yeah, sufficient purpose. Self-defense is not one of those. Um, what, it's an what, are, what are some of those? Uh, well, if you're, on, if you're doing pest control, if you're going hunting, if you're going to the pistol club, if you're going to uh, target practice, those are lawful purposes for you to carry a firearm. That is, it's on your person and under your control, right? It, it doesn't mean transport. Transport's different, and that's why where the police get in trouble when they're stopping you and the, and the firearm's in your car, you're not carrying it. It's not on your person. And so they have no legal basis to stop you to inspect how you've stored something in your car. That then comes under a premise or a house or a vehicle, and they have to give you seven days' notice. So you can't possess a firearm in anticipation that you might even need to use it in self-defence, Right. So, so the, if you say oh, I'm, I'm going to get a firearms license because I need to defend my family, you won't get it. Right? You have to have a lawful purpose to get that firearm. But the Crimes Act, the Crimes Act is slightly different, and it says that you're allowed to use reasonable force to defend yourself right, against assault or entry into a dwelling house, but it needs to be proportionate to any force that's being used against you. Right? So you have to make an assessment that the person trying to break into your house is going to give you, do you harm, uh, is carrying a firearm, is prepared to use that firearm before you can even make the decision to go and get your firearm out of the safe and then use it to defend yourself. And even then, the police will probably charge you, put you through the hoops and cost you $90,000 to defend it. Yeah. But some people have successfully defended themselves in that way. And, and Greg Carvel at um, SAI Guns is one of those people. But he was put through the ringer by the mm. police. You know, there was a guy who came into his shop armed with a, a machete or a large knife who was trying to harm the staff. And Greg shot him. And But the police still charged him. But he got, he got off. Right. Well, a few questions that I have is firstly, how many people in the last 12 months died in a firearms-related incident, do you know? I don't know the number, but it's a small number. Hmm. Like, you know, we're we're passing regulations for much less deaths than there are people dying on the roads. Which is, so that was the the bow that I was going to draw, because, well, what, 300-odd people die on our roads every year in a motor vehicle accident of one form or another. The regulation in terms of exchanging ownership of a motor vehicle or of any sort is a fairly straightforward affair without all of the hoo-ha and yet gun ownership is applied with this level of convoluted complexity that benefits no one. Yeah it used to be easy it was straightforward and then Christchurch happened and then the police used that for an ideological reason to clamp down on gun owners because the police have imported a lot of English police into the police force. And in Great Britain, the gun laws are very restrictive. And they don't see a reason why we shouldn't do the same thing here. Forgetting our upbringing, you know, that, you know, we were a frontier nation, really. You know, there was a need to hunt. There was a need to provide food. There's a need to do all of these sorts of things. 
And um, that's all been strictly controlled, you know, by the aristocracy in the UK for thousands of years. Right? Mm. <laughs> so, but we we had to provide for ourselves and defend ourselves. And, you know, we've had essentially civil wars uh, occur in the 1800s, uh, the land wars, et cetera. And firearms ownership was quite lax in up until about the 70s. You know, I, I, when I first started work, I started working in the National Bank and I worked with a guy who was like 400 million years old and um, he was telling me about how they used to go and collect the money from the Reserve Bank on a flatbed truck with big chests uh, and they were issued revolvers and they would sit on the back of this truck on the chests with revolvers in their hands to go, and some banks actually had a, a revolvers in, in the bank. You know, in, in, in my younger days, you know, there used to be a gun shop on Queen Street called Tisdall's. And you used to go, it was a good gun shop, and had a good gunsmith there. And you used to walk down the street with a gun over your shoulder, down Queen Street with a gun over your shoulder to take it into the gun shop to have some work done on it. No one butted an eyelid. If you try and do that now, you'll have 57 police uh, and sort of SWAT gear trying to shoot you um, because you're carrying a firearm in public, even though you're actually allowed to do that. Yeah, look, I'm from a rural community and it was just normal. I mean, on the back of the ute, I mean, everyone had a sort of a cradle in the back of the truck yeah. where the shotgun sat. Uh, and that's... So you're not allowed to do that now. You're not yeah. allowed to have them in a cradle on the back of the ute. You're not allowed to have them um, visible. They have to be locked and secured and all that now. You know, I know farmers who drive around in a ute or their motorbike, they've got a 22 handy, they see a rabbit, it's dead, right? They just shoot it right there and then. And now if it's locked up and it's and they have to stop and get it, well, the rabbit's gone. <laughs> it's just nuts what these people, the police are dreaming up. So, you know, the legislation in 1983, which I actually helped write, um, was quite good. It was focused around mental health. It was focused around licensing the person, not the firearm. The police had actually re recommended that a re uh, firearms register be abandoned except for restricted and prohibited firearms, and, and that's pistols and collector's items and things like that. So we kind of have a gun register now, but as I explained earlier, it's got holes in it. You know, mm -hmm. Things that are on my licence that I don't have anymore, that I legally sold and did with the proper paperwork, but the police lost the paperwork, but I'm the person who's at fault. Mm -hmm. So, so Speaking the, the, the rec recommendation was to carry on with that and tighten it up around certain aspects, but they've gone completely overboard now and spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to bring in a gun register on the premise, the false premise, that having a register is going to prevent criminals getting guns. Well, you know, I don't know what world they live in, but criminals don't follow the law, so they won't care that there's a gun register because they don't follow the law, they're criminals. So it's not going to stop criminals getting guns. So let's cycle back to the buyback. So, I mean, all of this, Christchurch was the catalyst of all of this. Well, it wasn't a buyback because the government never had the guns to give to you that they could buy back, right? It was a confiscation yep. with compensation. Yep. And they had to do a, confis a, a confiscation with compensation because the Arms Act actually said if you're going to confiscate somebody's firearms, you have to pay fair market value for it. So if they changed the law rapidly, they couldn't have done that. They had to pay money for it, you know. So, okay. anyway, Sorry. No, so because from my perspective, 
as someone who isn't a gun owner now, I mean, my father, I mean, as a farmer, he was that, and yeah. I, we grew up with it. I learned, I mean, I learned how to shoot a 22, literally shooting rabbits on the farm. So I, for me, it was part of everyday life. I look at that now, or is all of this the cost that we're paying, that gun owners are paying for the virtue signaling from our former prime minister to look good? It's worse than that. Yes, there's the virtue signaling, the, you know, um, hug an immigrant type, you know, behaviour that she exhibited, which was appalling it in, in the worst aspects. But the biggest gun grabbers ever in the world, in the history of the world, are communists and socialists, right? They're the biggest gun grabbers because the last thing that they need uh, is to have people with firearms who can rise up and say, you know, we don't like what you're doing. Uh, and so they confiscate guns and take them away. Totalitarians, whether they're fascists, they're fascists or socialists anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're the corporate version of socialism. But they want the general public disarmed, vulnerable, and then the apparatus of the state can grind you down uh, with their application of force. So at the same time that the police were passing all these new regulations and rules and changing the Arms Act and doing all this in the, in the wake of uh, Christchurch, at the same time as they were doing that, they were buying up an armory of, of advanced weaponry uh, that includes uh, a replacements for their um, 223 or 5.56-millimeter uh, assault rifles, which they banned everybody else from having, but they've got them. Uh, they then upgraded a, a large number of those with 7.62 millimeter or 308, which is a much bigger caliber, makes leaves much bigger holes. Uh, they've got a whole lot of those, and they haven't told anybody that they've got those. They they let me know by mistake when I answered a official information act request when I asked about magazines. Because the rifles that they bought all came with 20-round magazines. And I noticed in the wake of um, Christchurch, the police were all on the streets, but they had 30 and 40-round magazines. And I wondered where they got those from and why. And in asking the question about the magazines, they admitted to owning all of these other firearms with much bigger firepower. And then, of course, we saw in, in Wellington the use of baton rounds, grenade launchers, um, you know, at, these are military weapons that the police have obtained, kept it on the down low. It's only when there's something like that that we saw them come out. So when you say are, the police have obtained, are we yep. saying that they have been obtained, they've gone out and purchased those? Yes. Or Because where did all the guns that they confiscated go? Well, that's a good question because I happen to know of some guns that were confiscated, paid out to the owner, and then were suddenly on the license of somebody else. And uh, there was supposedly a lot of them destroyed. But the, what I'm talking about, the police have got, are new. They've bought those in, uh, including the Heckler so and that didn't appear in the um, budget then, did it? No. So they've bought grenade launchers that fire 40-millimetre grenades and a variety of rounds that are available for those. Now, we've seen them use the baton rounds, which is essentially a, a, a hard plastic, which will knock you over and leave, leave you with a bad bruise. And if it gets you in the face, it could cause permanent damage to your eyes or, or whatever, knock your teeth out, whatever. 
But the police have these weapons. These are military-grade weapons. Their assault rifles are military-grade weapons. But at the same time, they've been disarming people from having similar firepower. So you 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 kind of look at it from a philosophical point of view or or a political agenda point of view. The police are arming up while they're disarming citizens. That would normally cause a little bit of consternation. Why you know it used to be the police armed defenders squad were the only ones that were armed, and then they had Sarko treble two rifles. Well, now they've got military weapons. They've got, uh, you know, they have Americanized the police. They've got ballistic armor. They've got ballistic helmets. They've got um, vehicles with bulletproof uh, doors and windows. So they're, they're militarizing the police and raising their capability at the same time as taking guns off people. And that's a concern at the moment. But the more the government pursues a divisive agenda where they're separating society into groups, you know, we saw this with vaccinated, non-vaccinated. Now we're seeing it with Maori and non-Maori, co-governance, where 15% of the population get 50% of the say. These things create division in society and increase, especially when you apply racial divisions, increase the, the likelihood of seeing civil unrest and potentially civil war. Now, you mentioned the Second Amendment in the United States, and you have to understand that the Second Amendment uh, supports the First Amendment, right? So the right to free speech is the First Amendment of the US Constitution. And the Second Amendment, in order to protect the First Amendment, is that free persons have the right to bear arms, form militia, and protect themselves from the excesses of the government. Now, the US Constitution was written by a group of people immediately after the Revolutionary War where they seceded from the United Kingdom and fought a war against the best army in the world. Right? This is the army uh, that then went on to defeat Napoleon. Right. So it's only a few years before that that the British Army was getting beaten by a bunch of hunters and trappers and you know, civilians that had armed themselves uh, to protect themselves from the excesses of, in this case, a royalist army. And it's, um, it comes out of having that war, a civil war, a revolutionary war. It comes out from being oppressed. And we haven't had that in New Zealand. We haven't had a full-on civil war. We haven't had a revolutionary war. You know, the, the Treaty of Waitangi, a lot of people criticise it, but it actually stopped civil war. And we haven't got that background that would lead us to having smart and well-read people coming up with a written constitution that protects free speech and supports that protection of free speech by allowing people to have firearms. And so we're not in the same boat constitutionally as the United States. But we're getting close to having that civil unrest happening, and we're already seeing the start of that with increasingly violent crime and where people are rebelling against society.
But uh, also, too, with the increasingly violent crime, the police almost seem, appear to be bystanders in this. So they've armed themselves up to the teeth, and yet they don't appear to be doing anything in order to prevent it or stop it. No, but as society breaks down and crime becomes more rampant, and people then make the next step and they start to defend themselves and they'll start with using baseball bats and um you know, iron bars and things like that. And when that doesn't work, then they'll step it up. And it's only a matter of time before some little ram-raiding scumbag in a car gets shot um, by a, a guy who's had his 15th robbery and has had enough and has gone, gone and got himself yeah. a The hockey a stick's shot. no longer doing the trick, so yeah, let's go yeah, with something no, a bit stronger. That's mm. right, and then they just blow them away. And, and then you're going to see it all clamped down on the victims of the crime, not the perpetrators of the crime, which goes, I mean, just go back even to the Christchurch situation. We've had all of these laws come in to stop what was an aberration and an aberration that was allowed for through mistakes by the police and including changes to the legislation that allowed people like Tarrant to buy ammunition and firearms willy-nilly online, and Jacinda Ardern herself was the one who pushed that law change through. So what we've got is an ass-covering situation with these laws to protect something happening again, which will happen again. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, If people want to go and kill lots of people, they'll find a way to do it, whether it's a truck or a baseball bat in a a, uh, movie theatre or or a bomb or, or a firearm they'll do it. They'll drive a car through a crowd. If they want to kill lots of people because they're crazy, you can't stop crazy. There's no law that you can do use to stop crazy. And so what they've done is victimise 250,000 innocent gun owners who, bear, bear in mind, we're fit, are fit and proper people. Right? We, are, we have to be law-abiding because if we're not law-abiding, we're not a fit and proper person. The police gave Tarrant a firearms license on the basis of people that he met online being referees after being in the country for next to no time. And they made the mistakes. They made the mistakes in the vetting. They made the mistakes in giving him the license. They made the mistakes in in having a system that allowed him to buy large amounts of ammunition. They made all those mistakes, and it's us as firearm owners who are paying the penalty for that, not the police. In terms of having an effective opposition when any of these sorts of things happen, <laughs> I know it's an oxymoron, why then is it that so often when these convoluted pieces of legislation come down and you do have a change of government, that those who are coming in don't do anything about it? They just leave it in place. Is it because it is too much effort? Why? It's called political inertia. It's easier to do nothing than to do something. And unless there's a political will to do this, and the political will usually manifests itself after a tragedy, and then you get aberrations with law and stupid law and, you know, rushed law. Um, You know, in 1983, that was uh, when the Arms Act was written, there was no... Um, cause for that to be written. It was, they realised that the existing Arms Act was out of date, they needed to modernise it, they needed to simplify it, and they actually wrote a really good piece of legislation. And Peter Hilt was um, involved in a lot of that 
who he's now passed. Uh, then we had the Aramuana massacre, which then led to the creation of additional regulations and rules around what they called military-style semi-automatic uh, firearms. But it was bizarre. You know, they said if it's got a bayonet lug on the barrel and can carry a bayonet, then it qualifies as a military-style semi-automatic. You know, what is a bayonet lug going to do that a bullet's going to do less? You know, you know, it's just ludicrous. If it had a pistol grip, yeah. You know, now, most hunting rifles these days come out with some sort of chassis, and you know, the target rifles have got pistol grips and and all of that. And so, all of a sudden, you've got these laws applying to to stupid things. Um. So, what usually happens is there's a massive event, and then something happens, and they change the law, and then you get bad law, and then it just compounds. Or they're trying to mend the act in such a way that renders it unfit for purpose. And that's what we've got now. We've got so many regulations, so many amendments that the Arms Act is not fit for purpose anymore. And it requires a political party or parties who have got significant strength to actually say, no, we need to rewrite this law. We need to start from the ground up and we need to get people who understand firearms to write the law who understand how people use firearms and how they use them, how they collect them, how they do these, how they store them, how they transport them, and write the law so that it's it's sensible not being run by a committee that's controlled by the police whose default uh, premise is that firearms owners are potential criminals and we need to cut down every avenue we can dream up to to have one. And, and going back to that transport thing, right, I actually asked the police, how many guns have been stolen from vehicles that would not have been stolen if they'd been secured in accordance with the new law? And they came back with a number, and then I said to them, okay, now exclude the police from that, and the number was zero. Right? So all of the guns that have been stolen from cars in the last 10 years and then subsequently used in crimes have been police weapons stolen from police cars. <laughs> so they've passed a law to inconvenience the shotgun shooter who belongs to the local shotgun club on the basis that there's actually no crime that's ever been committed in amongst the general population. And then you asked about shootings. You know, it's a small number. But there's a significant amount of that small number are people who have been shot by the police. So if you exclude that, the number's even smaller. You're with Counterculture. I am Marie. I'm talking to Cam Slater, and we're discussing the state of firearms and firearms legislation here in New Zealand. I'm going to pivot slightly. Yeah. Last week, uh, the Radio New Zealand did a piece around police staying tight-lipped in regards to their preparation towards the election. I thought this was an exceptionally bizarre story. What on earth are they expecting to happen? This is the problem with the police, with the disinformation project, with politicians in general, right? If you are always looking for monsters, everything you find is a monster because it's what you're looking for. You know, if you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. And this is what the police do is they, they've, they've, you've got the disinformation project that's talking about political discourse that's 
hurty words and mean things and stuff like that, and that this is, you know, polarizing people, and they don't look at why people are being polarized, right? They don't look at, at how people are reacting, why they're reacting like that. It's the politicians that cause the polarization, but it's our fault when we react against it. And so they create these these scenarios, and then the police buy into that, and and start talking about all oh, the risks of politicians. And well, it's bollocks. It's complete bollocks. I mean, we saw in the budget yesterday that the the the, the politicians have voted themselves fourteen million dollars for increased protection for themselves. You know, because oh, it's terrible. People are saying dirty things, and they might they might they might act on it. Well, in my experience in New Zealand, people don't act on very much at all. Just look at the, the vaccine mandates and everything. Nobody said, no, you know what, that, that's against the um, Bill of Rights. How many people said that? You know, I, I can name them. That's yeah. how few there were that were saying that. And everyone else just went along with it to get along. And then Kiwis are their own worst enemy, and especially the firearms community. Though people will get along, will, will, will get along to, to get along. You know, they'll comply with things because they think if I don't comply, well, then it'll go badly for me. And we've got people in our club at Antique Arms that think that the police walk on water and that, oh, no, it's only reasonable. And this is the problem that the arms community has had. You've got organisations like Colfo um, and some other people uh, like Pistol New Zealand. And they act, Pistol New Zealand's perhaps the worst offender. They only care about what affects them. So when all of these bans on firearms and things came in, the pistol in New Zealand said, oh, no, we agree with that because that doesn't affect us in our pistol shooting. And I said to them at the time, and I said to Colfo, you've got to stop complying. It's just like the pandemic. You can't comply yourself out of tyranny. And it becomes a slippery slope. And you agree, okay, we'll agree to that. And then next week they're coming at you with another regulation, and they'll and they'll go and they'll say, "Oh, well, you need to be reasonable about this." And then being reasonable with the police invites them to squeeze you a little bit more, and then you, you, you they say, "Oh no, come on, be reasonable," and they squeeze you a little bit more, and they squeeze you a little bit more, and now of course the pistol pistol New Zealand is squawking because the new rules and regulations around ranges and those sorts of things are now hurting them. Mm. The, the 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 new transportation laws are now hurting them because the armor has got all these guns in this car and he has to secure them all somehow, you know. Um, it, but they, they caused that because of their soft compliance on issues that didn't matter to them. But now they're getting squeezed. They're expecting everybody else to go to come to their aid. Well, sorry, you didn't stand up. You didn't stand up for collectors. You didn't stand up for... Um, you know, three uh, uh, gun shooters. You didn't stand up for these these people, and now you want to stand up because it's hurting you because you've been squeezed. But sorry, you know, my my um, understanding and caring about your problem ceased to exist a long time ago. Well, for me, all of this always circles back to free speech, always, absolutely, because we've been groomed into complacency. We've been groomed into complacency that if you do not push back on this, your comfort, your level of comfort will be maintained. If you do push back on this, because we do not live in an environment where free speech is cherished, you then get cancelled 
or called out either amongst your peers or in the media or by people in authority or in the public service. And most people do not have thick skins. They're not disagreeable. That's, I mean, New Zealanders are nice people. They're agreeable people. And we actually, in a way, I think, need to go back a bit to our mongrel roots and find a little bit of disagreeableness to actually go back and put our hands up and say, actually, no. And I think that momentum is starting, but it's not, I think, anywhere near fast enough. And it's certainly not reaching, reaching the echelons of our political classes, that's for sure. Well, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, too. So... You know, the pandemic allowed, I call them the regime, you know, because that's how they were acting, high-handed and extrajudicially. Uh, they created a situation where people accepted excesses and breaches of the Bill of Rights. Now, no one in the United States accept, accepts breaches of the Bill of Rights. They sue straight away or they fight. Uh, New Zealanders have lost the fight. You know, we, we used to be such a capable nation. Now we get a weather forecast that says there's going to be a bit of rain and you've got this grief porn and weather porn being pushed on all the media and it, how it's terrible. We're going to have floods. People are going to die. We all need to stay at home. And it just turns into can't. We've just become feeble and weak and pathetic. You know, in, in 1944, 18-year-olds were charging off um, landing craft into German machine guns and artillery and and bombings uh, across the beaches of Normandy. Now 18-year-olds can't work out whether they're Arthur or Martha and need safe spaces. We've actually created a society where people like Charles Upham are not revered anymore, they're despised. Uh, And, uh, you know, the, the Barry Crumps of this world would never get anywhere because he's so politically incorrect. Right? Mm. But that is the ethos that we've come from and somehow we've allowed society to de- degrade to such an extent that we've become weak and pathetic and, and victims. And the politicians, if you give them an inch, they'll take 100 miles and they have saw that with a little bit of frowny faces, some clever messaging, that they could do awful things to society and we'd suck it up. Mm. Well, it's, it, that's the cultural shift in terms of demonising what that what Robin D'Angelo likes to call toxic masculinity. I mean, masculinity isn't toxic, it's masculinity that's gotten us to where we are. And that is, and and you just look at the leadership today. I mean, gosh, I so wish that Christopher, either Christopher would find a little bit of disagreeable toxicity. That would be a a damn sight better than the sort of simpering. I don't don't know about you. Have you ever met a Christopher that's strong? The name's weak anyway, isn't it? You know, I think it just breeds it. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson touches on that, you know, that he doesn't call it the toxic masculinity. Um, he talks about dangerous men doing dangerous things, you know. Uh, and, and he says that a dangerous man is a good man, someone who has the ability to be dangerous to other people, use extreme violence, but chooses not to, is a strong man. And We've emasculated society where strength is not a desirable trait that we see in our politicians. And instead, we've got wet, woke, and weak people who are 
trying to lead us. We've we've lacked that ability, that menace that exists amongst strong men who are disciplined, that if you cross this line, then it's going to hurt, has been bred out of society, you know, by by the weak and the feeble, the ones who are tough behind their keyboard and their screen, but you confront them in person and they're pathetic, weak human beings. And we're seeing this in society in many, many different things, you know, in relationships where, you know, the soy boy type um, in touch with their feelings, you know, soft bloke is held up as the sort of guy that women uh, are seeking when the reality is, is women like strong men and they like to be protected and they like to feel safe. And no, you know, stringy vegan, um, you know, soy boy type pansy bloke is going to be able to protect somebody when things get tough. No, no, not at all. Have you caught up with any of the shenanigans that's going on in the Deep South at the moment? No, which shenanigans are those? So in the Deep South, there's obviously the stuff that's going on in Gore, but a little further south in Southland, they have a the public swimming pool there called Splash Planet. They're has been a group of locals that called a meeting with I think the chief operating officer and the head of the pool around concerns when they realised that the pool were going to now enforce rules that biological males could enter into female changing rooms so they just needed to identify as female to be there and the locals uh, came across this and were quite concerned. And so they called this meeting. Those at the meeting only expected to have four or five people turn up. Uh, meanwhile, several, several hundred turned up. Now, I've heard 45 minutes uh, audio of that meeting. And what I heard in there were a lot of very angry fathers. And it actually gave me some hope that... There are some men, and well, these families and these fathers, these parents out there who are now starting to push back. And like we're all so busy, as you said, there's that complacency. And a lot of parents, we've actually usurped a lot of that parenting back to the state, to the schools. You send the kids off to school, get them back at three o'clock, and you assume that they have been taken care of, whereas now there is actually a level of indoctrination that's going on at schools that most parents are only just discovering. So this meeting is, it's still evolving down there, but they were going to take it to council. Nobby Clark, there's a name for a mayor for you, <laughs> Nobby Clark, he has said that they're not going to bring it to in front of council, this issue, and what they're hoping to do is to say that the family units or unisex changing rooms or toilets can be used as a compromise for people who are biologically one way but identify as another. So they're trying to put a band-aid over it. For me, the hope was is seeing a combined anger from a community actually standing up and saying, no, we're not comfortable with this now, but we need more of that across many issues, not just this one. Well, it comes down to terminology, really. and The manipulation the, of language, yeah. Correct. So you'll always hear corporates, especially corporate uh, woke corporates, uh, you'll hear um, politicians, and they talk about um, protecting 
the trans community, right? So that's presuming that there is, in fact, a community of such people, right? It's a lie. There is no community. Now, I happen to know a couple of trans people, and they've been trans people before it was a thing, right? So they're brave people. They've decided to live like that, and that's all good. One's a you know, property investor. and But anyway, they tell, tell me there's no such thing as a trans community. It's not a community. They don't all live together. They don't all um, socialise together. They're just ordinary people just getting on with their lives, and that's how they want to live. But there's this agenda, this woke culture agenda that has seeped into society uh, through woke corporates. And, you know, I'll probably get attacked for this, but um, my experience is that if there are key women in key positions in organisations, particularly in human resources, particularly in senior management, then that company starts to degrade uh, because they start embracing this kindness and woke and they forget about profit and and looking after their customers. And then they start pushing these agendas to be inclusive, which is ironic because it's actually exclusive. It's like the meme the other day about rugby uh, in Australia have decided to embrace, you know, the voice there and that it's all about inclusiveness and all of this. And somebody posted a picture of Israel Folau and said, what about including him? Right. So all of this inclusiveness that they talk about is actually exclusiveness. It's it's if you don't fit in with this, then you shall be excluded. Mm. It's a lie, and it's a fantasy that there's a community. And it's also if you just look at the math, right? Around about five percent of the population, give or take a couple of percent, Mm. uh, and are not heterosexual. That's the easiest way to say that, right? So they're not heterosexual. They're something else. And trans people are a tiny percentage of that 5%. And we're talking hundreds of people, certainly not thousands of people. And we've got this massive vocal violent push to promote their wacky ideology on to the vast majority of people and there's going to be pushback and it's, it's starting and it, and mm. it's not going to be pleasant and then they'll shriek a lot, whole lot more and it'll be handbags at dawn. Um, but this is the fantasy of all of this, you know, uh, creation of separate little communities that actually don't exist. Well, it's the devolution uh, of individualism. Because they don't well, want to right. create strong individuals. They want to pop everybody into their little box. And woe betide if you're a Rachel Stewart of the world and yeah. you get out of, you know, we've popped you in the rainbow box, darling, with the with the ever-growing alphabet. That's the box that we've put you in. And she's like, no, I'm just who I am. I just happen to prefer, one of my gay friends calls it, 95% of the world are heterosexual. The rest of us are interesting. <laughs> So, but, but you know, that's the thing. Like, they, they want us to care about who they are, but they don't care about who we are. You know, this whole thing about pronouns is a classic example, right? That is control of language. 
what these people are saying to us is that they want to control how we speak about them in the third person when they're not there, right? Because when we're speaking to them face-to-face, we say, oh, okay, Marie, right? Or, or if you're only using pronouns when you're talking about someone in the third person, or he said that, or they did that, or, or whatever. And they're trying to control the language about how we speak about someone when they're not there. Hmm. It's bizarre. I mean, I'm sorry, a plural cannot be a pronoun. No. Yeah, if you want to, you know, what if I decided I want to call myself killer whale instead of can? You know, that's the pronoun. I don't, it's just, well, actually, here's a better one. What, what if my pronoun's handsome? Now, I'm not handsome, right? But, but I now insist that everybody describes me as handsome because that's my pronoun. That's the ludicrousness of it all, right? That they're trying to control the language about how everybody else speaks. And Maori are doing this too with the insidious creep of, you know, pigeon Maori into, into our language on television and radio where you get a situation where inf- the whole idea about language is that information is imparted and they're making it exclusive so you don't actually know what the hell anyone's talking about anymore. So I uh, spoke to Dailandi last week and she is uh, one of the founders of a group called Mana Wahini Kōrero and she... Mm was talking about exactly that. I mean, it's not only the English language that has been captured and bastardised, it is also the Māori language. As she said, English alliterations that have been turned into to Māori, and she said, no one, she said, none of the nannies on the Marae understand this. They're just like, what is this? You know, this this isn't this isn't our language. Now, those who are at university, those all those academics that, you know, have laundered themselves with multiple papers that claim that they're the greatest since sliced bread. You they mean the are... colonial invention called universities? Exactly. You mean that? Yeah, that. <laughs> they will argue that, no, the language is a living thing and it needs to evolve. Ultimately, language is there to communicate. And if you are actually going to devolve a language to a point where the native speakers of that language can't even understand it themselves because these words were invented yesterday, well, then that's not inclusive, is it? What cracks me up is this massive insistence that we all use macrons, right, for for how we spell things now. Well, you know, at the same time, the people who are insisting that we do that are railing against colonialism. Well, how colonial is it to use a Greek creation from several thousand years ago to describe how we speak Maori in modern society? Is that not colonialist to use... Uh, European language constructs to describe Maori now. Yeah, this, this is the nonsensical logic that these people are employing. You know, the, the same person who is complaining about cultural appropriation of Maori uh, you know, by movie the, movie um, studios and, and songs and, and designs is, is a guy wearing a cowboy hat. It, it, you know, in a bolo tie. Like, what about your cultural appropriation? You look back in the years, you know, when Monty Python, you know, 40 years ago was in the life of Brian, they were talking about, you know. Loretta. Um, Loretta, you know. <laughs> you know, oh, no, I want to be called Loretta now. Why? Well, why can't I? You know, it was it was ludicrous then and it's ludicrous now. And then the same thing goes on this colonialism thing. Right? The famous skit with this, well, what have the Romans ever done for us? 
Well, there's the aqueducts. Mm. Well, okay, apart from the aqueducts, what have the Romans ever done for us? What is the roads? Well, okay, well, it's the same thing, this colonialism argument is what have the British ever done for us? Well, there's the laws, the hospitals, the society, the, the, you know, all of these sorts of things. They want to use all of those things, but they want to rail against colonialism. It, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's nuts. And the more we tolerate it, the more we accept it, the more farcical it becomes. It certainly does. And I think, I mean, we could talk about this all morning, but we're not going to. I will pick it up on another day. Like, Cam, I'm absolutely thrilled that you've been able to give us some time this morning. Thank you very, very much. If you've got questions out there for us or me at Counterculture, the address to write your email to is inbox at realitycheck.radio that's inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text 2057 is the number stay tuned more to come here with reality check and counterculture this is counterculture with marie busky wednesdays at 10 a.m on reality check radio Good morning, you're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I would like to introduce to you my guest this morning, Kelly Veludos, who is from ARC Education. Welcome to Counterculture, Kelly. Good morning, Marie. Thank you so much for having me on. We, well, we're really having a chat. important subject. It yeah. is a really important subject. And I just said, to, we were chatting before we uh, went live and I just said to Kelly, We've got to get this. We've got to get this out to the people. We've got so much to talk about. And let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll talk about ARC, and then we'll talk about the important work that you're currently doing. And people are starved. Parents are starved for information of what's really going on in our education yeah. system. So I think you're going to lift a lid on a lot of this for us today. So take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Marie. So um, you might detect a small accent here. Um, I was actually born in Zimbabwe um, during during the War of Independence, actually. And then I went to university in Cape Town um, during the dismantling of apartheid and lived in the UK for seven years after university and then came to New Zealand 25 years. So I'm... Um, basically a New Zealander. I'm a Kiwi through and through in the, in the respect that I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in the, in the world. Um, but because of my, I guess, my the, the conflict in, that I've been born and brought up with, um, I've always been a bit of an artist thinker. It also helps that I'm dyslexic. I'm biologically dyslexic. I was diagnosed, which is really um, was an anomaly in those days because I'm actually quite old. <laughs> um, but all through my career, I've been teaching now for 30 years um, until 2021, until the mandate. And um, all through my career, I've been a pariah in the system. So in that I've fought for children's learning rights, so to speak, and also I've kind of paddled against the stream of wokeism and often complete and um, how, how can I say it, um, 
ludicrousy quite a lot of the time. Um, I have been involved with learning support for at least 20 years of the 25 years that I have been in New Zealand. Um, so I have worked with the most at-risk students in a DSAR 1 um, school in Rotorua, gangland Rotorua. Um, and what, uh, what I achieved there, I'm really, really proud of because a lot of those students were put on the, put on the heap, so to speak, um, as, as a waste of time, but ended up going to high school in accelerate classes. So it was quite a, quite an achievement really. And, um, probably the best learning grounds of my life, um, and I moved down to the Horo Whenua, actually down to the Kapiti Coast in 2019 and became a Senko in uh, Wellington High School. Um, and my experience around learning support in that area was, was interesting, to say the least. Being a Senko is an incredibly difficult job. Um, because you are always pushing up against funding deficits, and not only funding deficits, but a lack of access to funding, a lack of access to support. And um, when you're in a role like that, you really realise how convoluted and disorganised the Ministry of Education is. Um, I have been interviewed for <laughs> for a strategic design job in 2018, but um, missed out on that basically because I am too much of a change maker. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's it's become a really big passion in my career or in my lifetime to create change and shift paradigms when it comes to education, not only for our, our children's sake, but for our sake as well. You know, education is the foundation of any kind of collective paradigm. And if we don't get that right, we're, we're on a hiding to nowhere. So yes, that's a little bit about me. In in 2021, that was the termination of my 30-year career. I started a business called The Arc Education NZ with two other amazing ladies who have since um, dropped off and gone off and done their own thing. But I am currently the founding director and only operational director of the ARC Education NZ, but I have a real passion and determination around promoting it and making it into something that is really useful and is really um, almost, actually not almost, definitely a model to how a system could operate. Yeah. 
Yeah, so providing an alternative solution to an already very complex problem. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's uh, it's a different it's a different kind of business because um, although I I myself am tutor and offer a few services, we're more a directory and a resource repository for. Not only in New Zealand, it's gone for all the organic marketing, but it's it's a, an access point or a connection between educators and learners. So um, educators pay a really reasonable subscription fee because you know we do have to, <laughs> I do have to live, <laughs> mm. um, and um, they are profiled in the directory and also you can have access to the resource pages um, and the events page is actually a free service so if anybody has any kind of educational event um, you can access the events page and um, put your event on the form and I will upload it for you um, It's it's come to the point where it will it will hopefully take off now um we the more diverse um services and educators we have in the directory the better because mm. my my absolute belief is courses for courses um i i have no judgment again you know about what you do as an educator because I really believe that you know every everybody everybody has a need and those needs are are really diverse. So if we can have if we can have as as a diverse range of of educators and services on the directory, we will be able to meet more needs. So you've got obviously two two groups of need. You've got the needs of the parents and the students, and then yeah. you obviously you need to resource that with the educators. I mean, so far, are you finding it is those who are working either outside of the formalised uh, curriculum, so fully private schools or integrated schools that have a more open opinion and view on education? Is that the mainstay at the moment? Actually, the mainstay at the moment is... Um, those educators who have stepped out of the system, to be honest, much like myself, um, when we first started, when we first started the ARC, it was with a real strong focus on providing a platform for those teachers who had been mandated out of their jobs to be able to um, establish a and, and promote and support them in establishing their own independent income um, because it became really obvious to the three of us at the time that all of us mandated teachers how absolutely reliant we are on state on the state for our livelihood. And that is why so many teachers were coerced into doing something that's something that they really didn't want to do mm. because their whole livelihood was on on the 
on the skids, basically. Part of the whole kopapa around the art education was to provide a, a, a platform of support and and an opportunity for them to be able to start their own business. It's been quite slow on the uptake. A lot of people have said, oh, what a great idea, what a great idea, but people are, wait, are waiting and seeing. But in, in a situation like this, if you wait and see, then, you know, we, we don't have the people on the, on the directory and, and it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it, we really, really, really more investment um, because then we can put in marketing and um, establish teams mm. to actually make make it function in a really um, global way. At the moment, it's just me doing everything. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, as as we grow, the team will grow. I truly believe that it will become a really fundamental resource and support system for not only learning support students, not only for homeschoolers, but actually all for everybody in it who has an educational need. And educational needs don't stop at formal education. Directories actually have categories for health and wellness. So anybody who, you know, has a yoga studio or a, who educates, even if it isn't a formal education institution, they're more than welcome on there because the more diversity we have, the more, like I said before, the more chance we have of meeting people's needs. Mm. Yeah. So let's look at where things are <clears throat> at schools at the moment. We, how and where is the core curriculum in our schools failing our children? <laughs> my my <laughs> pet peeve. Okay, any curriculum is set by gender. Whether we like to think it doesn't or not, it definitely does have an agenda. Although our curriculum in New Zealand has been touted to be one of the best, most innovative curriculums in the world, it is not everything that it has been cut out to be. We have a great key competencies part in, in the curriculum. And perhaps if we were really going to be innovative and forward thinking, that's all we'd have because the other part of the curriculum, which actually is the main part of the curriculum, is all about knowledge and philosophy and how we are teaching. And that, to me, can become very dangerous in that the agenda is very evident in what you are teaching and how you are teaching it. Give us an example of that. Okay. The sexuality part of our health curriculum. Gender issues are pushed at a really young age, which actually is completely unnecessary, um, in my opinion. Kids should be allowed to be kids um, without having the the burden of deciding whether they're a girl or a boy or, or a or a 
whatever. Just allow your kids to be who they are without having to label them in any kind of way. Whether they grow up and decide when they are capable of deciding, whether they decide then what gender they are, that's that's fine. But To push an agenda onto young children, to me, is not only immoral, but really, really dangerous. So when you're saying young, we're talking, what, intermediate, primary? Where are you seeing it? Primary school. I'm seeing it at primary school. There are examples of of it happening at primary school, which has shocked me, and I'm not easily shocked. (laughs) As, as young as seven and eight. So that begs the question with these children. I mean, I know what my sons were like at seven and eight, and I had one who desperately didn't want to go to school, so it was everything mm-hmm. I had to do to get him out the door to school. And I think we get, we're going to cover attendance a little later yes. on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a huge hot-button topic, I believe. And then I had another one who loved going to school. He really wanted to be there. He wanted to be with his mates. He um, he just loved everything about it. For him, it was this wonderful social utopia that he got to go to between nine and three every day. He just thought it was the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And so he absolutely loved it. Now, they had their own little battles to fry um, of what was going on in a day. To be actually sort of confronted and faced with that at seven and eight years old, I mean, their biggest, I mean, for one of my sons, his biggest issue was, is had I put the right things in the lunchbox? You know, that, <laughs> that was... And that's what it should be. That's exactly what it should be. The burden of making our children grow up too fast, it's already showing in the cracks in, in mental health and well-being within our teenage population. Um, and, and New Zealand has the highest rate of teenage suicide in the developed world. And I honestly believe that we are burdening our children way too early. We shouldn't be burdening our children at all, not even at an early or later stage, proper curriculum or a realistic curriculum would be the key competencies and teaching our children to um, be comfortable with the power that they actually have, because we actually all have an innate ability to create we all have, it doesn't matter what ability, academic ability you have, we all have an innate ability to create, we all have an innate ability to communicate, and we all have an innate ability to connect. And those three things are actually probably the most important aspects of human existence and that's what we should be promoting at school Mm. that's what we should be developing and allowing the rest to happen does that make sense yeah yeah it does it does it's about humanizing our education system rather than the systematic dehumanization that is happening at the moment this is Counterculture with Marie. I am talking to Kelly Valudos from ARC Education. You said earlier you taught in Rotorua in a Desire One school. Now, do you think a lot of these more ideological-based curriculum 
does that have traction in a school like that? Or have those students got so much going on in their <laughs> home and social lives that they're not really terribly concerned about pronouns? Absolutely. There's so many other things that they've got to worry about that um, that's pronouns and first world problems, so to speak, mm. are really not a radar at all. I actually only really came across the problem or the issue when I moved down south to the Wellington region in 2019. I'm sure it's an issue that has been happening for a little while, but it's in the last four or five years, it's really, really been pushed and come to the fore. As a teacher, it's really been interesting to watch how it is a political football, how education has become a political ideological football. In my opinion, it should never, ever be. During the COVID years, I think that there have been a lot of things in legislation and also in uh, setting policy that have been rushed through without any sort of consultation. Are you seeing that now, having taught 2019 and then sort of coming out through the curriculum post-lockdowns and thinking, when did this get here? Has there been evidence of that? Yes and no. The evidence is definitely becoming really, really evident now, like today. All the previous legislation and policy that had had been rushed through in 2019-2020 has really kind of settled in and established itself, I think, in our schools. With, dare I say it, whether you agree with vaccination or not, I think it was a really effective, systemic way of getting rid of anybody actually going to stand up and say no or question or, you know, basically be the the checkpoint for policy. Mm. Most of us who were vociferous or parole to the system, not that or you know, violent in, in, in my in my interaction with the system. I've always been a pariah. I've always questioned. People like me were very effectively ousted. So what's happened, I think, is with those checks having been taken out of the system, so to speak, it's just become rife because not a lot of questioning is going on. Mm. There's a lot of fear. Absolutely. I interviewed Helen Houghton a couple of weeks ago, and Helen entered politics because of this. Yeah. She was saying now that, like they did in medical, with the threat of if you speak out against the COVID measures, if you now speak out against ge- any form of gender education or ideology, you run the risk of going up in front of the teaching council. So, I mean, I appreciate that you're speaking to me today because this mm-hmm. could potentially put a bullseye on your back. Is- For me, you know, it's not even about. With gender issues, it's it's not about what a child, what a child decides they are or or how they operate. It's not about that. It's about um, systematically taking away our children's childhood. That's what it is for me. People's decision as to what gender they are has no effect 
on me personally at all. I don't have a, a stand a standpoint on that at all. But for me, why would we be taking away our children's childhood? That really worries me. That worries me is that that we're pushing our kids into the into a corner basically a lot of the time. Attendance. Let's talk about attendance. <laughs> that is something that has been receiving media attention and legacy media. And you posted a, a very, very good blog post on this. This really piqued my interest because my both my boys are at high school, at the same high school, and they've got a really wonderful core group of friends. And they've got one friend at the moment who is suffering the most dreadful anxiety, and he has not been back to school this term. He just, he literally will get his uniform on and he's even gotten a skateboard out to go to school. He'll get to the end of the block and then he'll have to turn around and go home because the anxiety overtakes him. So it is very, very real. Mm -hmm. And you published in your blog, uh, The Nitty Gritty of Education Rebirth Part 1. And I suggest that everyone has a look at this over at the arceducation.co.nz. And you've put up there a statistic which comes from uh, Education Counts, uh, so it's a government website, statistical website, showing the attendance from 2019 through to 2022. And I'd hate to see what 2023 looks like. Mm -hmm. And it is showing that across all metrics between regular attendance through to chronic absence, the numbers, but what got me is regular attendance, which 90% or more, Mm-hmm. that we were seeing sort of around that's between 60 to 63%, which personally I think is not great anyway. It's awful. 2022, so no COVID, no lockdowns, 46%. Mm-hmm. So less than half less than of our half. kids are regularly attending school. Why? Which is, well, that's the question that we need to be asking. Instead, money is being pumped into forcing kids back to school instead of asking why aren't they attending? Why is there this huge anxiety? Why are they feeling like home is a better place or a safer place for them than school? Basically, we're missing the point. The other day I read in the paper that They're putting millions and millions of dollars into building new schools. (laughs) Why? When our roles have dropped, you ask any principal in the country, their role has dropped. From primary to high school, the roles are dropping. Our homeschooling community has quadrupled since 2021. People are not feeling that school is a safe, um, happy place to be. This age is the culmination of many years of problems. Our education system is based on the industrial model. When mass education came out over 100 years ago, um, it was definitely based on a production line model and for feeding the market, the, the employment market basically. Come the 80s, we get tomorrow's schools, which is based on neoliberal principles, all about production and money and um, getting people out to work. And we have 
come to a point in our human existence where that actually doesn't matter anymore for our kids. With technology and um, with all the advances that have happened in the world, evolutionary, you know, advances that that have happened extremely quickly, especially in the last years or so, our kids are facing a world that is completely and utterly different and unknown to what we've had previously for the last few hundred years. I don't believe that schools, and and this isn't just New Zealand, this is a global issue, really. Schools are not designed to develop skills and the the soft skills and the personal skills or the personal power for, for our kids to face the future. And they know it. They know it. So many of the kids that are not going to school say, and I, I know this because I work with a few of those kids, they say, well, it's irrelevant. I'm bored at school. It's, it's useless. What am I learning that for? They do not see the relevance in what they're doing. They also feel that they're not learning. They're, they're not being taught to learn. They're being taught what they need to know, um, which in this day and age, um, information is freely available. They don't need to remember things for tests and things like that anymore because in real life, they can just look it up. Um, what they do need to know is whether that information is reliable, how to apply that information, and how to create something that will benefit them and the rest of the society from that information. That is not happening essentially within the system. There, it is in pockets. I'm not going to say that it's... Yeah, because it is a gross generalization when I say that, but predominantly, unless a teacher is teaching with that basic philosophy, it's not happening. And so relevance an issue. It's a huge issue for our, our young people today. And then also, as I've said before, you know, the, the huge burden that is put on these young people to comply, to not say the wrong thing, to socially fit in school just becomes a, re a place of stress upon stress at mm. the moment. I've written down here belonging. Belonging is huge. Belonging is, and I mean, that's, look, that has always been part of school. I mean, I wasn't in the in group at high school, so I was certainly on the out group and I was bullied for it. But you know what? By not having that sense of belonging, I certainly gained a hell of a lot of resilience. So yes. there is swings and roundabouts with this. And I look at just my son's friend group. It gives me hope because this is the it, it is the most quirky collection of teenagers you've ever seen and I love every single one of them great. Yes. it is just wonderful and I love talking to them and you're right we're not giving them enough credit these kids can see through the bullshit oh absolutely absolutely you're right we're not giving them the credit 
for whatever reason, whether it's an evolutionary thing or whether it's a created thing, we are seeing more and more and more neurodiverse kids coming into the system. And the system cannot handle it because so the system is so very left-brained and the neurodiverse kids are very right-brain dominant. That's what neurodiverse mm. is. So let's talk about that a little bit, having been the parent of a neurodiverse yes. child. We talked about this before we started recording. The battles that I have waged uh, in his, he's in year 12 now, so I'm nearly throughout the other side, but the battles <laughs> that we have waged in that time. And mm. hand on heart, I can say that I've been very blessed that the actual individual teachers that I've dealt with, the Senkos mm. that I've dealt with, they themselves were amazing we felt like and I'm going to use a Harry Potter analogy we literally mm -hmm. felt like that we were in Hogwarts and we were fighting the Ministry of Magic that's what yes. it was like to the point mm -hmm. where one of the key ministry people that was assigned to my son's case at primary school and I remember one time we were really just working so hard to just keep him at school and trying to mm -hmm not only cater to his needs but also ensure that the impact on the other students and the teachers was not so great and we were finally starting to get some traction and things were starting to settle a little but he's neurodiverse he has to ask questions mm -hmm. unless he asks mm -hmm. questions he can't read facial cues he couldn't those natural social cues to him are a mystery so he mm -hmm. requires clarification in order mm -hmm to know the expectation that needs to be met. Yes. So, of course, that in itself is disruptive. Disruptive. But he would do that because that's what he needed. And I remember this ministry wonk, who <laughs> our nickname for her was Dolores Umbridge, saying to me, Marie, you need to counsel your son at home to stop asking so many questions. School is not a place for questions. Oh it is goodness. a place for him to do what he is told. There you have it. There you have it. That told me everything I needed to know about the Ministry of Education. Absolutely. Um, look, not the whole Ministry of Education are on that page of the book, but because everything is so siloed and so convoluted, it is incredibly difficult to access anything, funding, support, anything within the system. And it, I suspect designed that way economically, it works for the system. Yes. What we have to really keep in mind is that the system will always support the system, always. It is not about the individual. It is not about each uh, developing a human being. It is about feeding the system. And that's because the basic Co-papa or the basic modus operandi, well, we could call it wrong, but it is what it is, and it is about feeding the system. That's what it's about. Access to any kind of support is nigh impossible. And you talk about individual teachers. Now, what really has irked me for years and years and years now is why aren't we training our teachers to cope, not only cope, but to, to be able to um, develop an environment where 
all students are able to flourish. The fact that you have to speak to individual teachers about your son's way of being is preposterous to me. Everybody should have that basic knowledge, the basic skills, in order to be be able to allow every student, whether they're neurodiverse or not, to flourish in their care. The system has produced wonderful, wonderful people, but the emphasis is on compliance and and control, basically. You know, it's called control the behavior in your class. Well, it's not about controlling the behavior in your class as far as I'm concerned. It's about teaching those kids how to behave so that they are able to connect. They're able to communicate. They're able to create because that's what learning is. Learning is basically creating. Because the focus is on compliance and control within the system, that aspect or that human aspect or empowerment is, is sorely lacking. And that is why so many of our neurodiverse youth, are they're dropping off the bus with the bus going. They're just not having their needs met. It does not surprise me. I know the battle that we waged to get Mm. our son where he's at. And not everybody has the ability to be able to do that. Not everybody has the time that they can do that. I mean, I won't lie. We talk about his primary school days and we call those the dark days because Mm. it was incredibly stressful on all of us, including him. Yes. Because he can see that he's creating this pressure and division and he can't control it. No. Yeah, it is really, really difficult. And so if you are a parent out there with a neurodiverse child, just know that you aren't alone on this. You know, I mean, we all battle this. For me personally, it was developing that relationship with the Senko. One of the things that I did was I created a guide to my son. So I had this document that looked like a brochure, sales brochure. You can tell the <laughs> ex-sales and marketing lady, can't you? So I created this uh, the sales brochure for my son and it literally pointed out all his features and benefits, uh, all of the things that you needed to look out for. And so I was able to bullet point, these are all the things that he loves, these are the things that set his world on fire and get him engaged, these are the triggers that will create disruption in your classroom. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you see this, because it was the things like those disruptions, they have that the analogy of the frog in the pot, Mm -hmm. which gets used Mm -hmm. a lot with those with neurodiverse children. Because it will actually be something when you light the flame, which is what's Mm. going to set that Mm. frog jumping out of the pot. But it's all the other things that uh, the temperature as it rises, all the other things that get layered. And then the thing that will finally set them off is not actually the thing that upset them to begin with. And of course, teachers would not know that connection. So I created this and I updated it every year. And so every teacher, it became quite famous at both the primary and intermediate school (laughs) he was at because they would get this guide. And then I bribed all the teachers with um, morning teas and... Things like that to keep them on <laughs> side. I had no shame. I was that mother. What, I just a, had... what, a, what a wonderful advocate, Marie. <sighs> Unfortunately, you are in the minority. What gets to me is you shouldn't have to do that. Mm. You shouldn't have to do that. That should be established already. As a SEMCO, I, I did the same thing. I 
um, established learner profiles for all our um, neurodiverse kids in the college. They were sent out to all the teachers and everybody knew, and they were developed in conjunction with parents and the student themselves. It wasn't just from behaviour reports or anything like that. In the high school that the boys are in, the Senko yeah. there, who is, well, she did try to retire. They've had to bring her back. Uh, she <laughs> is, she's incredible. And she's done exactly that. Like, and the number of, there's a huge number of neurodiverse children there. It's that cluster effect, doesn't it? When you have somebody yes. doing something really well, people yes. will cluster to that, which then actually yes. brings the clustering to homeschooling. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about homeschooling because I think that there are a lot of parents out there who have transitioned to homeschooling mm-hmm. or they're considering a transition to homeschooling. So what's yes. your interaction with homeschooling parents and education? Actually, as I speak, I'm working with another colleague and we're working on a home educator's 12-week course for all home educators who want some kind of inspiration, knowledge and support in what they're going to or are doing. And the reason why we've put this course together is because we both noticed how many parents are now choosing to go down that route. Like I said before, the official numbers of of home educators um, because you have to get an exemption to be able to home educate without being harassed or without being outside of the law, so to speak, from the Ministry of Education. And the exemption process is taking months and months now because of the huge amount of applications that they are dealing with. And this is probably since about August 2021. I know that June or July 2021, the average amount of applications that they were processing was about eight a month. Eight. By December 2021, January 2022, they were having like, I think it was four or five hundred applications a month. Do you think any light bulbs went off at the ministry at that? I would probably think they have, but in a machine that is that large and that siloed, it's very much reaction process, and the reaction is very, very slow. There's not much responsive action that comes from the ministry, unfortunately, and that's not criticizing individuals that's not these these are a lot of people who are working absolutely 24 hours a day in the ministry trying to create change they are they are those amazing people but because of the enormity of the machine you become a cog basically yes there's a lot of people who have now come to the con that Either their child is not being supported or is not a school is not the right place for them, or they've become very disenchanted with how schools are run and what the agendas are that are being pushed in schools 
whether teachers like it or not. I'm never going to blame individuals in my profession because who are at school predominantly are there because they want to do the right thing. Their philosophy is sound. It's just what working with that isn't. And you don't know what you don't know. There's a lot of parents who are coming into the homeschooling community, which traditionally has been quite siloed. So I think it's it's a trend that needs to be at and perhaps used to model different kind of system in the future, if that mm. makes sense. If we could make school more like home, there are ways of doing that. I mean, if we looked at the Finnish, the Finnish model of education, we'd learn a lot. We'd learn a lot from them, how their classrooms are run, how their teachers are trained. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. About stopping and thinking and recreating, rebirthing education. <laughs> For those looking for resources, because you, there's been a lot that we've covered this morning, mm. obviously your web, website, thearcheducation.co.nz, yes. you, you, I really enjoyed your blogs. Where else do you suggest that parents who are just seeking alternatives or additional support that they can provide, where else should they look? Okay, so if you're looking, if you're looking for support with an exemption, which is where every where every parent starts off with. Actually, on, on the website, under resources, there are a couple of people that you can contact, one of them being Cynthia Hancox, who is our home education guru in New Zealand. The New Zealand Homeschooling Association, a lot of resources and support and information. So have a look up, look at that. All of that is actually on the website under exemptions and homeschooling and under the resources button on the ARC Education NZ. Facebook groups. Facebook is a very uh, resource, even if you hate it. <laughs> there are a lot of groups and you'll probably find that there will be a homeschooling group in your area. Um, I very, very much recommend that you get in touch with your local community because homeschooling can feel very isolated. And if you can get in with your local homeschooling community, there's usually a lot going on for them within the area. And if you are a homeschooling community and you have events and things that you would like to get out to, please use the events page on um, on the Arc Education NZ. It's there. It's a free service. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about. I'd really like to support those people who are wanting to connect and communicate with each other. So, yeah, hopefully the ARC education will become more and more useful to people as educators join and come on board. And look out, look out for Drop the School Run course <laughs> that myself and Gemma Chambers are putting together at the moment. 
Oh, that's wonderful, yeah. Kelly. Look, thank you so much for being so generous of your time this morning and the early start. Thank I do you. appreciate it. Again, that website is arceducation.co.nz. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie. Stay tuned. We've got more music to come as well as Media Matters and the Woke Word of the Week. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio and Counterculture. I am Marie, and my co-host for Media Matters is Marty Gibson. Marty, we've had a lot of fat to chew over with the budget. We chewed over a bit with Cam and Paul on Friday. Here we are again. And, of course, over the weekend, the post-mortems all came out, all the obituaries, depending on which way you wanted to look at it. I found it really intriguing to see who thought what and where over what was essentially a budget that was exceptionally dull. Yeah, hi, Marie. It was almost seemed deliberate. Well, I mean, it was deliberately so, the old, uh, the old bread and butter budget. The analysis of it, the focus seemed pretty muddle-headed but you know we've talked before about the uh innumeracy of reporters and uh, the horsepower didn't seem to be there in the main body of the paper to analyze it i couldn't help but feeling the whole tone of the budget was whoever decides strategy in labor they've said to hipkins and robertson these are the people you need to appeal to these are the votes Q&A this morning, there was a discussion between Fran O'Sullivan and Sue Moroni. They'd said, you know, this is aimed at women. I'm not going to throw stones in that glass house, but they're certainly not wrong. I mean, there was a lot there for women and they were all issues that primarily from a financial perspective, women take care of. I mean, they are looking after uh, the families are the ones often taking the kids to the doctor. So the prescription charges, they're the ones that are organising to get the kids to school. They're the ones that are... Well, they're the ones that respond to the we're kind thing, which I've waffled on about endlessly, that why National allow Labor to hold on to that? And then no sooner have Labor laid little trap for them with the removal of the $5 pharmacy surcharge, Luxon and Willis just jump on it like eels into a hinaki. You've said this before, I mean, duff hands on that. I mean, Luxon had to wheel back Willis's comments on that, you know, saying that, no, we would make it a more targeted approach. Did you see what Joyce's comments were on that, which I thought were just on the money? Gosh, I missed that, As usual, he's the guy who... It's just the right kind of note in terms of detail, but accessibility and, and just having a, a good appraisal of, of the situation. Well, as he um, said in his piece in the uh, Herald on Saturday, 
the initiatives in this budget are the sorts of things that you dig out of the bottom drawer when you can't think of what else to do. The prescription charges, for example, sure, some people won't have to pay $5 for their scripts anymore, but a big chunk of people weren't paying it anyway. Government boosters point to low-income people, but they already don't pay. They point to heavy users of medication, but their costs are capped. In the large parts of the country, the, the aggressive new pharmacy players mean that they don't pay either. This initiative is largely a tax cut for the chemist warehouse. Mm. Yeah, well, I had a chat to a, uh, a pharmacist this morning who said, well, National have lost the pharmacist's votes. That's um, the predatory tactic that the chemist warehouse has used to close, and they've stated their aim is to close down local pharmacies. And you can be assured that once they've done that, the prices will go right up. Another thing I found interesting around the dropping of this $5 rate for prescriptions is it also bases this massive assumption that these people are able to get to the GPs to get a script in the first place. I mean, I would have felt vastly more comfortable around funding to increase GPs or a funding for new immigrant doctors to come in on a bonded type scheme into rural and provincial areas in order to help GPs instead of areas like Murupara where they have to fly up doctors out of the deep south in order to, to keep things going. It just seemed to me like peanuts for the monkey grinder, that kind of feel. Again, I you know, we have to caution ourselves not to assume that They've tried to do the best thing for New Zealand and and failed. Uh, they're trying to do the, the best thing to keep Team Red in charge of Treasury. Do you feel that the budget was aimed to appeal to all of those voters that in 2020 switched from blue to red and they want to hold on to them? Yeah. I mean, as I said, the aim is to win the election and uh, they don't care if our grandchildren are saddled with ruinous debt, you know, and we're all in a big tax trap. The principal economist at Infometrics, Brad Olson, says interest rates may rise because the budget creates an extra $20 billion hole compared to earlier forecasts with the government saying it intends to spend $9.4 billion more over the next four years and earn $10.7 billion less. And this kind of twisting their hair into pigtails and, well, you know, we're just going to have to raise interest rates. I mean, what are the odds that the bankers win? You know, pretty good, it seems, you know, especially now where entering the usual phase where money supply is being tightened after being pretty liberal and um, they're turning fake money into real real estate as they jack interest rates up, you know, from 2.5 to 6.5. So, you know, most homeowners are going to be paying tens of thousands of dollars more on their annual mortgage repayment than they did a year or two ago. And they're going to be spending an extra thousand dollars a year on food, is the is the calculation. Tracy Watkins, uh, you know, she wasn't it wasn't really analysis, but I thought it summed up the just the blah nature of the of the budget. She said, if Labor looks fresh out of ideas for the challenging times we're in, National is not offering much more. It seems equally determined to stick it to its bread and butter, trotting out tired old tropes. It has been trotting out for a decade or more about budget blowouts, higher taxes, boogeyman, and law and order. Is it simply that after a couple of decades of crisis and change, earthquakes, the global financial crisis, COVID, and now devastation wreaked by climate change, governments and oppositions have had to be constantly reactive, transformation being a luxury for another time? Or is transformation just too risky politically these days when winning seems an end goal in itself? That was her editorial in the Sunday Star Times. 
Andrea Vance sort of touched a little bit on hers too. While Hipkins is camped firmly in the centre ground. Really? Yeah. Right. Okay. Warmed by the embers of his policy bonfire, Luxon et al are scrapping over votes with the wrong team. National is allowing ACT to drag it further to the right. The miserly medicines policy, two-for-one farming regulations revocation, originally a Rodney Hyde idea, ups to Rodney, scrapping the firearms registry, resurrecting live export shipping, the revival of the no-clause rental terminations, youth crime boot camps, and its war on the Wellington bureaucracy. These recent policies seem firmly pitched at the groans swell. Yes, she wrote that groan swell demographic. Older, male, rural and reactionary. Odd, really, because these voters are National's traditional base. Their support or it should already be banked. If some have drifted away to act, National should be grateful. Better David Seymour than Winston Peters. I think that that's a rather large assumption, don't you? Mm. Yeah, and, you know, it's worth understanding Marxism, or at least knowing the lexicon of it. The word reactionary is used to refer to those who oppose the glorious communist revolution. So whether or not she understands that and is using it deliberately, or whether she's just so steeped in it that it's just like um, a fish breathing water. The way she closed that uh, with the saying the trouble is National is only listening to its rusted-on support in the golf and rotary clubs of New Zealand. These supporters are telling it what it wants, not needs to hear. If National stops fighting with ACT for a 5% vote share on the right, it might just secure the extra 5% it needs to roundly beat Labour. And that's true. I mean, this is something else we've talked about in terms of Chris Luxon's just failure to remember the features tell, benefits sell maxim. They're still talking about the economy. They're still talking about money. The money doesn't matter. And then the next breath said the money is important. And so it just feeds into that left trope all national cares about is money. Pitching themselves as at, at war with even gangs rather than, you know, taking a more compassionate angle, again, feeds right into that nervousness that middle New Zealand has that we're going to see another Ruth Richardson austerity, I guess, is is the word. One of the other pieces that I picked up on, and again, look, we shouldn't bog ourselves down in this too much. They're all big on promises and announcements and not really big on delivery. So we have to, I think, listeners, we just need to take this with a grain of salt. But another one that I had a little chuckle around was the 300 um, new classrooms that they mm. are promising, well, where are they going to find 300 new teachers from, just saying? Or are they going to be cutting up these huge, big open-plan classrooms and actually creating proper classrooms like they should have all along? But I thought to myself, well, where are the kids coming from? Where are the kids coming from? So I actually jumped on and did a little bit of a look at the birth rate. And the current birth rate in the New Zealand is 12.2 births per 1,000 people. That's right. where it's at, currently 2022. That is less than half than what it was in 1950. Now, the thing to remember about that is that those who were born in 1950 are going to be drawing super. And theoretically, there's going to be two of those for every one child born in this country. So they are talking about building classrooms, but interestingly enough, there was nothing anywhere here in this budget that were appealing to that group of people 
which is a vastly bigger number of people than, you know, the two-year-old uh, education fund. And again, I don't know where they're coming from. Like, where, where are these kids coming from? So it is, as you said, they're playing around with places that they know are safe. They're trying to hit the dinks. The mum and dad and two kids were one and a half these days, isn't it? Yeah. When you read the newspaper, you're looking at as much at what's not being said as what's being said. The, the precipitous drop in birth rate, the pre precipitous drop in male fertility, testosterone, it, it just doesn't feature. And you'd think it would be bigger news generally. And the aim, you know, that we can putty it up with immigration really is almost a tacit admitting that we're a society in in decline and potentially about to collapse sounds dramatic but if you if you look at the unwin pattern for society civilizational collapse once you've taken the uh, stigma off premarital sex you've got three generations and once uh, societies go into decline they don't recover yeah that's that's always something to think about the good news is, and I think this is where I think and where I'd you know, like for us to be talking about a bit, is during those collapses, there's always a parallel culture that rejects the behaviours that creep in, the, the mindless pleasure-seeking, the, the abandonment of logic. There's a, there's a group of people who abandon that and form the seed of the renewed culture. So maybe we're that, the media representation of that. I'd like to think so. The earth, we can only hope. I think on the budget, the last word, we'll give the last word to Stephen Joyce. It's a barren budget, bereft of ideas and showing no willingness to seriously address the country's issues. So at least it achieves one thing. Now you know beyond any doubt that if you want to change, you will need to use the ballot box. Yeah, no, he, he excoriated uh, Granty in this, didn't he? Where does all this money go, given that it's patently not coming back to New Zealanders in the form of tax reductions? or better services. The minister himself says nearly 80% of it is to pay for cost pressures in the public sector. No new or improved services, mind, just more money for the public service to keep doing what it is already doing, which appears to be overseeing a decline in education, health and public safety. I'm sure the public will be comforted to know that at least their servants in Wellington are being fully protected from the ravages of inflation. Treasury now expects government expenditure to grow nearly 20% more in the next four years, on top of 60% growth in the last five. To cover that, net government debt is now apparently going to peak at 43% of our economy next year, up from 20% five years ago. As I've said, you know, if you give a Marxist student politician a credit card, it's no surprise when they're not responsible with it. None whatsoever. Uh, before we dive off politics into uh, another little uh, feud, which I think is much more entertaining, I bought the local rag, actually, so you wouldn't have seen this, but uh, Labour chooses a candidate for Napier because, of course, Stuart Nash is departing after his term is complete. And to be fair, he has been MIA. I mean, no one has seen him pretty much since the... Uh, since the incident. Shuffle. Yes, since the, yes, the tech incident. Incident. Uh, they have announced. So guess what they went for for Napier? What sort of candidate they Okay, went for? let me guess. Statistically, I mean, the most common occupation in the Beehive at the moment is ex-teacher, followed by union organiser. I actually like playing a game of this with my wife when Labour announced a new candidate. I, okay, it's going to be a teacher. I think the last one was 
uh, teacher and union organizer. So double on the bingo. Who was it? Right. Well, it is Gay somebody called nowhere near. Actually, it is someone called Mark Hutchinson. Mark has, he's a local, he returned back to New Zealand uh, and set himself up in business in Napier. But this is what you need to know. So obviously Napier has a, has a type. So we've had Stewie since 2014. And we got Stewie after the vote was split. He won by 3,850 votes over Wayne Walford. What they don't tell you is that Wayne Walford and Garth McVicker both combined had nearly double the number of votes that Stuart Nash had. So it was a split vote. And I know I brought it up on Friday and I'm going to bring it up again because I believe we have the potential, we have all the ingredients for this to happen again in this country in Northland. So I, mm. I'm just putting that out there. So that's how long we've had Stewie for. But that's okay because Stewie lets us know that I've known Mark for a long time. He's a success. He's a successful businessman. So there's a change. He's worked with some of the country's top leaders and he has skills and competencies and the capability to dive in and get work done, he said. Since returning to New Zealand in 2009, he has consulted across a range of industries with clients like Trust Power, Fonterra, Chorus, New Zealand Post, Waka Kotahi, Mercury Energy and Fletcher Building. And he's now managing director of a Napier-based Divergent & Co, which he established in 2016. He's essentially Nashi Part 2, another good-looking 50-something white mm. guy, which I <laughs> is so you think he at least would have formerly been a woman or something like that. Well, is he shaping no, himself up as a future leader of the renewed Labour Party after it all burns to the ground, do you think? Or imagine someone looking at what they've done in the past couple of years with that kind of business pedigree and saying, I want to be a part of that. Hutchinson is the sort of candidate that honestly I would have expected National to put up or act mm. even. But here we go. Here he is with Labour. Uh, we'll be running, he says, a full-on grassroots campaign. I can't wait to get out there, meet people and businesses across the electorate. Now, I bring that piece up because, as I mentioned before, with how they've done the budget, obviously the policy strategy for Labour this election is bread and butter, back to basics, grassroots. I think they've actually realized that they can't carry on this ideological pathway that they've been down and they're wanting to sort of bring things back to the middle but you know what i don't know about you gaslighting much i mean really <laughs> do you think people will buy that yes well uh, the other thing is do you really think that the strategy for what they're going to do originates in chris hipkins you know, I mean, this is another thing that never comes up in the paper. Chris Hipkins, World Economic Forum, young global leader. Jacinda Ardern, World Economic Forum, Forum, young global leader. And I mean, I used to torture myself by thinking about the phone calls that um, she must have had with Klaus Schwab, you know. Oh, you know, Jacinda, all revolutionary leaders, you know, uh, nobody understands them at the time, you know, in time you will be viewed as a great visionary leader of your country. <laughs> and I could just imagine her doing her prayer full eyes to the sky as if getting divine inspiration. Oh, yes, it is really hard being a leader. The cynical part of me wonders whether they're limping along with Nationals' leader at minus 14%. Yeah, net likability you know, or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if you 
really were running the National Party the way, you know, you, you, you hope they are, you'd be able to cobble together a strategy that would differentiate you from Labour better than they have. Start by doing what it says on the box and just getting a bit of national focus, right? Rather than global Marxist socialist utopia, well, what's essentially the neo-feudalism that the World Economic Forum are looking for. And these guys de-armed us and are just pushing us, uh, the avant-garde pushing us towards. I just fear that National is going to fall into the trap that they believe in order to appeal to the so-called inadverted commas middle voters, that they will they play the, the Labour game. They look at the budget that's just been announced and they try and counteract that with more of the same but with a slight national spin, when the reality of it is, is they need to do the complete opposite. I mean, they're losing core voters uh, across to act. But I think more than that, there is a growing number of Kiwis who are just, they just want to feel that a representative for them is going to be relatively authentic, gets the problems that they are facing every day and says, it's all right, mate. Yeah, we know what that's like. We're going to sort it or this is what we see. This is what we're going to try and do. Come along for a ride with us. And that's just not Luxon. There was the same mistake that the Australian Liberal Party made in the last election. They were trying to appeal to these effete greeny voters in um, in the leafy suburbs in Sydney and completely dropped the ball over appealing to their core support. And in the end, all those voters went to the Teals as well, who are essentially the Greens, tentacle reaching out to drag all those voters left. Mm. Well, let's move from stormy weather in politics to stormy weather of another kind. Yeah. The revelation that ours is the only country in the world with two government-funded meteorological agencies competing with each other on our dime. I know, and there it looks like there is going to be muskets before dawn. There is certainly quite a ruction going on between Niwa and the Met Service. Government is seeking official advice about New Zealand's weather forecasting systems amid industry fears and conflict between the Met Service and Niwa, and concerns that the public has been fed confusing and mixed messages. Met Service itself has spoken out, saying that in severe weather events, it should be the agency. Kiwis are relying upon. In major storms such as the recent deadly cyclone Gabrielle, Met Service and Niwa will issue their own forecasts and data, sometimes with different information and presentation formats. Media and outlets will often choose between the two or even publish both. In an interview, the chief executive of the privately owned agency Weatherwatch, Philip Duncan, said Niwa uses foreign terms of what he calls the ridiculously overused phrase atmospheric Atmospheric river, I think that we use very Americanized terms, which are big, loud, and get them into the news. Now, I know that you've done a bit more of a deep dive on this. This caught my eye as well. To me, I'd always thought that NIWA was more of a research arm, but they appear to be hitting the Met Service's patch, and the Met Service doesn't like it. So what have you found out in your little investigations on this? Well, I mean, I've always, as I've mentioned before, I I studied earth sciences in uh, the early 90s, and I had 
a couple of lecturers give us a very detailed breakdown on the hypothesis that anthropogenic CO2 was a driver for climate change. You know, both of them saying, look, it accounts for about 5% of, of the effect. Most of it's water. Uh, it's like painting a window. Once um, you paint on the first layer, it has most of the effect and subsequent layers have declining effect. Temperatures started rising before CO2 and many times in the fossil record, so it's not causative, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, that that provided me with a background that made me somewhat more jaundiced looking at all this stuff. And as I said, you know, I was a journalist and, and Al Gore's hockey stick graph uh, was coming out. I was able to say, well, look, that doesn't include the medieval warm period, which was warmer than now, or the Minoan warm period, uh, which was much warmer than now. So it's probably not going to happen. The other thing that that article said about uh, NIWA's, they use automatic forecasts with no intervention by professional meteorologists. They often offer conflicting advice. Uh, and with the climate change focus, um, NIWA often using sensational language. And so, yeah, Philip Duncan says NIWA had been putting out some very big press releases over the years and many of them haven't panned out. Now, what the way you can read that is, you know, all of these big headlines about climate change generally come from computer models. And you can make computer models say whatever you want. Uh, very little of it has come from actual measurements. And the thing that jumped out at me in all this, and it was a very big article, was there wasn't a single mention of Ian Wishart's recent revelation. I don't know if you are familiar with this, that Niwa has ignored many worse weather events than Cyclone Gabriel, even when they were saying it's the worst recorded event, and these are getting more frequent due to climate change, completely ignored this barometric record, generally taken by uh, sailors who stake their lives on it being correct, so it's very accurate, that showed that going right back into the 1800s, there'd been much bigger low-pressure systems than Bola or Gabriel, and they'd come more frequently. That piece was absolutely fascinating. And if people haven't caught up with that, I know Paul Brennan discussed it with Ian uh, in the first few days of Reality Check Radio. So I do really strongly recommend that you hunt that out in the replays. I actually listened to, a couple of days ago, the piece done in Greenwashed with Don Nicholson and Jaspreet Bopperai. And they interviewed Professor Ian Plymer out of Australia, and he said very much exactly what you were saying in terms of the climate warming and the information that isn't always particularly correct. And he mentioned water vapour, and I know that that's something that you've mentioned before. Everyone, he says, focuses on CO2 and to a lesser extent on methane. He said, but the number one driving force in adverse weather events particularly is water vapour, and no one is talking about water vapour. And do you know what drives water vapour? Big volcanoes going off in the Pacific the Ocean sun. as a start. Uh, yep, yeah. and the volcanoes don't help, but it, 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 it's primarily the sun has a big effect on it. You know, it's all handy for climatards like James Shaw to want to borrow and then sacrifice tens of billions of dollars of sacrifice hundreds of thousands of acres of productive land and rural, rural communities to the climate fairies. But, you know, even worse than that, you know, this obtuse fudging of data to suit the narrative has resulted in a lot of housing developments on floodplains 
that should never have been built there because they were sort of built to withstand a one in a hundred year flood that lo and behold is a one in 10 year flood. You know, and this is now playing into that agenda to get people into these World Economic Forum 15 minute cities. And so you've been hearing even in Maori publications, oh, you know, our people are going to have to uh, undergo a managed retreat. It's not an error. It's disinformation. But Kate Hanna seems oddly silent about it. I heard a subsequent interview with Ian Wishart, and he said he put it to the National Party, put it to the media, but they've been absolutely silent on it. You know why? It's a huge story with tens of billions of dollars of implications. Yeah, this is the gaslighting. It is. I think you're right. It is gaslighting on a massive scale. And there is this almost this pitch battle on who owns the truth on climate. I loved one of the lines in the article I had, because there was a couple of articles on this, is the Met Service was, in adverted commas, the single authoritative voice for severe weather. The government pays us to deliver severe weather warnings. This is in line with the World Meteorological Organization expectations that to avoid confusion, each of the 193 member countries and territories will be very clear on which one of their meteorological agencies is the single authoritative voice for severe weather warnings. If you're Philip Duncan, he must be sitting there with the popcorn loving all of this. Mm. Well, I mean, it's a pitch battle in those minor areas. But remember that for years we've had that science is settled mantra. And I noticed, note that further in the paper, there was another climate alarmist article citing Australian National Science Agency, CSIRO, which insists that climate change has been directly affecting the strength and frequency of El Nino and La Nina events as far back as 1960. Now, he belongs to the IPCC, which are only focused on identifying and verifying the anthropogenic climate change hypothesis. In much the same way as the Ministry for Women are only focused on jobs for the girls and injustice against them. It's not scientific, and it has a similar effect to a ship having a jammed rudder. I mean, it's a chaotic system that is virtually impossible to predict with any accuracy. But there's a thought among psychologists that people self-sabotage so their lives are at least predictable, if miserable. And I wonder if people prefer wrecking our economy and terrorizing children into buying the climate change hysteria rather than facing down the complexities of arguments about what an incredibly complex and chaotic system will do. You know, you go further into the paper and you can hear these young people, uh, an opinion by India Logan Riley, who says she's a Maori, Wahini Maori uh, climate justice organizer at Action Station and was a recipient of the 2021 Bright Award for Environmental Conservation from Stanford University. And she says, by now, any climate harm is by design thanks to mediocre policy and bad budgets. This lack of cohesive, ambitious Leadership puts a strain on our young people. Two weeks after the cyclone, I asked a room full of young people at a school in Hastings to raise their hands if they felt hopeful about the future. Not a single one did. The students looked around, nodding with each other as they got present to the situation we find ourselves in. Emissions aren't going down. Material hardship and corporate profiteering are going up. It's terrible telling kids this. And I mean, you had no show without punch. You had your mate, Janil Lal who said, as climate change revs its engine, climate disasters will increase in frequency and severity, and more New Zealanders will be affected by harm. But the most idiotic remark of all, I thought, was James Shaw's after the budget, where he said, 
we haven't spent what we needed to prevent climate change happening. My God. And this guy, like the guy who's in charge of Met Service, has got no training in climatology at all. Not even science. Illusions of grandeur, much? How climate change? It is. It's an is. It's not. It's not a tap that you can turn on and off, James. Well, by borrowing money, and, and isn't it amazing? The solutions always more that money. We we get uh, someone to print well, by one estimate and the listener a few years ago seventy billion dollars this decade. Internationally, I see there's beginning to be some blowback, particularly up in the Northern Hemisphere around, in the UK, I think, some pushback on all the net zero policies now and things are starting to sort of bite there. The problem, of course, we have down here is we're always the last one to arrive at the party. So I just can see a lot more intervention and confusion and a wasted money preventing things in the name of climate. And what is actually achieved in any of it? I mean, it just cracks me up that in the budget, they've labelled it cyclone recovery and they're hoping to become the great panacea and heroes for those roads and the Coromandel and West Auckland here in Hawke's Bay who have been adversely affected, building new bridges, putting things back to how they need to be when all of those were already on the books and got scrapped by this government anyway until Mother Nature stepped in and actually forced the issue. Mm. But, you know, that gets popped down the memory hole, doesn't it? Well, as Voltaire said, uh, Marie, truly whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. As I've felt more and more uneasy understanding that the malinformation in in the paper and uh, from politics it is deliberate. And I've been reading some of Hannah Arendt's quotes as well. You know, she was the lady who wrote um, about the Nazis and coined the phrase, the banality of evil, which, you know, I think about old sausage roll eating Chris Hipkins, just such a harmless little fella. But what he's presided over, you know, and you think about the real deaths that have likely occurred as the data emerges from what he's done. It's a pretty good description of of those guys. Mm. It just and and the, that's been a strategy of just getting people who you think, well, what's what are they going to do? But they're middle managers. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. So all that contradictory data is right there, but people just sort of aren't interested in it. Uh, And another thing she said, there is a strange interdependence between thoughtlessness and evil. She certainly was one of the great thinkers that came out of that period post-World War II. And if you, uh, and I know Matthias Desmet based a lot of his theory on mass formation on the work of Hannah Arendt, and it is, and it's certainly worth reading. If you haven't read The Psychology of Totalitarianism, it is an outstanding book. And it's not a big read, it's a pretty easy read. And that's it's just- It's chilling it, though, isn't it? As you <sighs> recognise so much of it. And we flatter ourselves that we're so much more enlightened but all those niches are still there Mm -hmm. the the crowds forming around witches being burnt for witches you know the witch finder generals they're all there they haven't gone away no well human human nature is human nature and that will be one thing that never never ever changes 
This is Media Matters, of course, with Marie here and Marty Gibson on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. And so we're taking a look at what has been some of the news of the past week. So what else have you got on your list? Well, I spoke with a fellow who has started selling fog cannons the other day. And he said it's incredible going into these stores, how they say, oh, yeah, my dairy's been hit three times last week. The level of crime that... um, shop owners are facing and it was interesting to watch i watched q a um and the police minister since march Ginny anderson was uh being asked about the crime statistics seemed pretty out of her depth i mean it would be a hard thing to front because actually paula bennett rolled out some good figures in her articles ram raids are up 500 percent since 2018 Anderson said that ram raids are continuing to trend downwards, ignoring that there were 51 ram raids in March this year, up by 24% on the month before. Violent crime has jumped 33% since 2017. Police statistics report that there were 292 retail crime incidents every day in 2020. That's a lot of crime. There is a 61% increase in gang members. In real numbers, that is 300 more on the national gang list in the past two months. And again, you know, I'm a bit blackpilled. This isn't an accident. Governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more powerful government. And gangs fit that bill nicely. She used the word gaslight, you know, as, as national have, but probably um, not, not as I use it, which is that the whole thing's theatre. And if you point out that it is you you get a label slapped on you and you get separated from the herd which um well that is actually the true meaning the true meaning of gaslighting is when you know something to be true and when you question it they came come back with a fiction or a, as you said a theater to try and convince you that what you actually know is true is wrong yeah well i mean in this government they have been running a master class in gaslighting especially in this term it's funny you should mention that i drove past uh one of the local dairies as i drove past i noticed you know and this is a it's on a corner it's quite a new building so a lot of glass huge big plywood up on the glass and i thought there you go i bet that's had a car through it, and the little corner dairy literally at the end of my street here has been ram-raided three times in the last six months. I was copied in on um, a series of text messages between retired policemen and uh, from harder policing days. Uh, one of them sent me a uh, an article about a brutal mongrel mob incident outside Palmerston North Cafe uh, where a mongrel mob funeral procession was stopped, and they got out and just beat the tar out of two people in front of a coffee club. And the comment was uh, from this ex-policeman, once again, the gutless police were nowhere to be seen. The bleep, cowardly bleeps. Here I am referring to the police. Why weren't they shadow patrolling them? You know why they weren't? Because they're scared of them. I believe the day New Zealanders arm themselves is not too far away. You cannot depend on the police. They were probably all at some rest home tasing a 95-year-old female with dementia. They need to sack the current commissioner of, of police. This is where the buck stops. And another one said, yep, we are a shadow of our formal, former self. Almost all female police do not wish to engage, and more males now are so wimpy. You're probably right about cowardice. Yeah. Yeah, it is certainly concerning. And, and I mean, what you're referring to, I think that was in New South Wales, was it not? A uh... Yeah. 
95 year old i think obviously with dementia got a little bit loose and free with a walker and they taste her i mean really 45 kilos apparently the yeah the the uh, body cam images are, are not flattering to the cops yeah those uh crimes have real chilling impact and in order to be a prosperous society you need to be a high trust society so when trust starts declining everything starts going downhill and that starts at the top when the social contract is broken between those that you've elected in governance yep. and yourself, it's just all downhill from there. And that social contract was broken about four years ago. And again, what National's missing in all this are the people who are suffering most from these scroats and scumbags running amok are poor New Zealanders living in tough neighbourhoods. I think there's probably been a, a message to... Um, the police to crack down on um, kids who go up and down the streets doing wheelies and burnouts on trail bikes in Manarewa. I was talking to a policeman who's down there and he was infuriated. He said, we've been told not to arrest them because it's dangerous and the, the residents just hate us because they've, you know, they've got no respect for us because they see us as too soft to do anything about these law and order issues. You wouldn't have heard just uh, just before the segment, I interviewed Kelly Valudos, and she is uh, an educator, and she was talking about how she taught in Rotorua in its decile one school. And we were talking around some of the ideological impacts on curriculum that is happening at the moment. And I asked her, well, when you were teaching at that school, were these kids particularly concerned about gender identity or pronouns and, and the like. And she was like, no, of course they're not. They've got bigger things to fry when you're in that social situation. And that's the other side of it. I mean, it is ideologically, this is all from a place of affluence. And the ones that need the help the most are the ones that have been shat on from a great height, supposedly there in a position to help them. But as you've said before, you know, if we fall into the trap of believing that that is actually the purpose, when actually, is it really the purpose? Is that? Well, I've got a theory about this, Marie. <gasps> I've got a theory about why we're not allowed to criticize transgenderism at all. I think the reason we're not allowed to cast any aspersions on transgenderism as being anything but normal and healthy is so we don't start talking about how xenoestrogens in industrial products and food are wrecking our endocrine system and getting back to that thing of you know why are sperm counts just plummeting why is fertility plummeting you know, if we start saying, hey, why are all these boys suddenly wanting to be girls? I mean, it's happening to frogs. If we started doing that, it, it probably uh, would lead to a, a whole string of things being unraveled that are being hidden from us at the behest of advertisers and again, bankers. Speaking of advertisers, I got something sent to me the other day, and I've seen photographs of this now, Target in the US, which is a big retailer like the warehouse, right? For Pride oh. Week coming up, uh, have released a series of clothing, and part of this clothing is underwear and swimwear, which all have tuck pockets in them to tuck. Oh my you know, god! Really? I know to tuck the little silly sausage away, but then. To be fair, Eddie Day, they put out their new line of women's uh, pride swimwear modelled by a man 
with and I mean I'm assuming that they're claiming that either this is someone who is gender fluid or identifies as a woman but needless to say this was a man with his full meat and potatoes downstairs there was absolutely no breasts to speak of whatsoever it was seriously the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen you know they'll be celebrating that it's just such wonderful progress whether or not it's a, another bud light go woke go broke thing but again it's not being done for commercial reasons and it's, it's that repositioning of culture downstream from politics yeah speaking of go woke go broke did you see disney had to uh, pull the pin on its very posh star wars themed hotel mm. a little over a year after it opened jada pinkett smith's cleopatra the lowest ever rating netflix show and i think it was also rotten tomato score was like zero one percent one percent oh yeah wow yeah, I mean, this is where the fact that we're engaging in all this stuff and talking about it, we've got so much to do. The, the people who are resistant to the programming, as Huckleberry Finn said, that there ain't no time to swap knives. You know, we've got a big job to start at least making sure that we've got a culture that's going to survive this one riding it all the way down. Well, that's okay, because if you are in the United States, dope shops get fungal. Cannabis dispensaries in Los Angeles are selling magic mushrooms amid a statewide push by some Democrats to decriminalise the potent hallucinogen. Cannabis has been legal for recreational use in California since 2018, and some cities have since relaxed their laws on the psychoactive plants and fungi. Illicit dispensaries are now taking advantage of high demand for magic mushrooms, whose active ingredient psilocybin, which research suggests can help treat post-traumatic stress disorder, in the past six months, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has served about 50 search warrants at dispensaries. Democrats in Sacramento, the state capital, are attempting to decriminalise magic mushrooms to align California with the likes of Oregon and Colorado. Um, Joe Rogan will be delighted. He's well, the heartbreaking um, article, I think, in the Sun in the Herald Weekend, um, Herald on Sunday, sorry. Uh, about suicide and saying that, um, you know, that the extremely high suicide rates among tradies and, uh, mm. you know, had a guy who almost committed suicide, you know, saying how he was drinking two bottles of wine a night. Booze is the most overrated antidepressant. It's, and, you know, booze is what allows us to stay asleep. It, it enables us to, uh, keep pushing down those things we know aren't right. And that's why we're allowed to just go to any corner shop or go to, you know, supermarket and buy such a harmful drug. The soma of our times. Yeah. If you, if you get too many people on mushrooms, um, mm. it's not going to do government any good. Do people some good. Now, have you got anything else in uh, your pile before we finish up? I don't really. It was, you know, as another high fiber week of munching away. I just had one last little one for us, for you and I. Go on. Go on. Go on. Our good old friend, the Gisborne Herald. Oh. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, the Gisborne Herald this month reduces its number of publication days from six to five, Tuesdays to Saturdays. It now also is being printed by New Z the NZ Herald owner, NZ Me, and its LZ Presses and truck to Gisborne each day, which 
upsets my parents greatly, by the way. According to my mother, the quality of the actual paper itself isn't as good and she can't use it quite like she used to when she'd finished reading it. Oh, dear. So that's from Mother Busky. While this is a momentous change for us, we anticipate that the most noticeable change for our readers will be the addition of colour on every page. Gisborne Herald Managing Director Michael Muir said earlier this month. I'll always have a great affection for the Gisborne Herald. You know, I, I loved working there. Sometimes I, I was probably a pain in the ass, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm sure John Jones loved you every single moment you were there, Martin. <laughs> I, I think he uh, he often shook his head in wonder, but um, <laughs> the ease with, with which they took the public interest journalism fund and just trotted out the party line and blocked anything that contradicted it while giving free column inches to people who just are manifestly crazy really didn't do them any favours. Well, I don't know what it's been like when you've gone back to see your family, but when I go back to see mine, and of course my parents still still subscribe, as I'm sure your Mm. dad probably does as well, and you go home and I pick the paper up and I read it. You were talking before about how much of the content with the weekend's papers is high fibre. I find much of the content in the Gisborne Herald these days is very much candy floss. There's a reason that the DHB and the council and the iwi uh, advertise so much in the paper. It's not necessarily for the advertising itself. It's to provide a pressure point if um, the message isn't agreeable to them. And uh, I know that during the treaty settlements, I wrote one or two stories that got canned after a a uh, call from the lawyers that Kitty Allen worked at. It's well, sad that go. the printing uh, has moved because yeah, those, the guys in the printing room were always uh, really uh, good value. Yeah, nice, and it's just sad. Solid, it's just yeah. another one of those entities that have centralised away from the provinces. And I think, you know, places like that, it's always important to maintain those locations. We're probably not doing them any favours either because I've been going through more reality check radio content lately, and it's awesome. It's yeah. really, really high-quality interviews, really, really timely, good-quality information. When you put it next to the pallid amoral bleating of the sheep in legacy media, it just makes that look terrible. And if anyone wants to find any of that content that Marty is talking about, it's quite simple. Just go to realitycheck.radio, click on the replays tab, and there you will find lovely big tiles for what have been the highlight of the week. But also too, you can pick certain shows that you like, so you can pick counterculture, and then have a look at all the interviews I have done since Reality Check has started. I have to admit, what I love is the downloadable feature that we have. I've been so busy that I struggle to catch up with interviews. And as I mentioned before, I caught up with an interview with Don and Jazz Preet from the other day that was incredible. And it's so good to be able to download those and listen to them at your leisure. So we're sort of part radio station, part sort of podcasting repository. So do make sure that you do that. Marty, thank you again. My pleasure. For another week. Keep listening. Don't disappear. The Woke Word of the Week is coming up. All this and more here on Reality Check Radio. Have a great week. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The vocabulary words and phrases that have been hijacked by those steeped in the world of critical social justice. This is a word to watch out for this week. Pronouns. 
A pronoun is a word that stands in for a noun, often to avoid the need to repeat the same noun over and over. Like nouns, pronouns can refer to people, things, concepts, and places, for example. I, you, she, it, this. This is what pronouns have been since primary school grammar lessons. However, those that insist on mustering people into groups and applying arbitrary labels to them, manipulating language is their favourite pastime. It now appears that pronouns are third person only, by which an individual wishes to be referred to in order to indicate their gender identity. Think he, him, she, her, they, them, zizer, and the four more recognised gender pronouns. What? That's a lot of pronouns for just two biological sexes. The good news is, is that if you're wanting to identify a wokester and the abundance of tattoo piercings and blue hair is absent, just look for gender pronouns in their Instagram or LinkedIn profiles and then proceed with caution. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text. Send your comment to 2057, that number 2057. I look forward to bringing you more great interviews and opinion next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Radio.